This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lingle. Today's show, the pandemic ravaged our families and friends indiscriminately, and we lost many we loved. Two years ago this week, the entertainment community around the world mourned one specific loss. Carol Sutton, the New Orleans actress who graced the stage in numerous films as she breathed life into the written word. We'll feature an encore presentation of our remembrance of this very special lady. That's coming up. Also, anti-Semitism is on the rise. Tulane Professor Emeritus Lawrence Powell will join us on the topic. Up first, Louisiana's nascent medical marijuana program continues to face challenges throughout the existence of this program. Gretna Representative Joe Marino has chaired the state's Medical Marijuana Commission. While Marino has consistently attempted to steer the program's focus toward patients, there are numerous parties involved and exerting either authority or influence, and the program suffers from lack of access, lack of product, and costs well above national averages. In a pre-recorded freewheeling conversation with Marino, we'll present this slice as he explains a new dispensary rollout first, and he'll talk about his challenges with securing telemedicine recommendations from doctors. H&W, which is the one that is in this region for New Orleans and Jefferson, um, they were allowed to do a satellite. Remember, you have, you have seven or eight uh, eight out of the nine, I think, were qualified to have a satellite. Mm-hmm. Either seven or eight out of the nine had hit the patient count, so that meant they could open a satellite location, which means compete against themselves, which is not really competition. Right. But only one so far has even taken any action, and that's H&W. And H&W has now got, uh, a per- they got permitted to operate at the location that they selected, which is in Metairie. So there will be, they, they uh, you know, soon they should be opening. Um, so that will go from nine total to 10 total in the state of Louisiana. And then the 10th license, which is supposed to be awarded uh, in, the, in maybe next week, um, they have uh, the Board of Medical Examiners is meeting to hear the applicants that, that had favorable recommendations for for, for the license, and then the other group that did not get a favorable recommendation on the 14th and the 15th. So I think by the 15th, they'll be awarding the 10th license. So maybe by January, you know, we might have 11. Now, let me ask you something, Joe, because we've talked about this before. Does that not just, the, the current circumstances are there's not always enough product, according to patients, when you talk to them. Of course, them. that's So this is just going to dilute it now. So what's it, now it's no longer available at one place because it's no longer available at the other place. Well, what I've heard is that, you know, that the, uh, it depends, it, there's a blame game going on as to how or why there are shortages. You know, according to the growers, they have plenty of product that is waiting to be tested, but the Department of Agriculture, which is still the only testing site, is dragging their feet or not doing it at all. But again, you know, I mean, it's I've never strayed away from my contention that we don't have enough suppliers, growers to meet the demand. And, you know, but, but I mean, look, you know, a year ago we had two growers and nine dispensaries. OK, now. We have two growers and nine dispensaries. Yeah, so. Not moving forward. Let's get to the <laughs> point. You've been in the news the past couple of days because you have written a letter. Tell us a little bit about what this is about. You've written to Attorney General Jeff Landry for a clarification on telemedicine. It's pretty much almost a last resort at this point from dealing with the Board of Medical Examiners. Uh, they came to our Medical Marijuana Commission in September 
and the executive director made some statements that the board's position was that you needed to have an in-person visit before you could do telemedicine, which is not at all the way that it's been done. And it's an additional requirement and restriction that they are imposing. Uh, so I had several meetings after that with their council and, um, and they were going to draft an emergency rule to exempt medical marijuana from this inpatient statute that they're relying upon. And in October and November, it didn't happen either time. Um, so I'm, I'm writing a letter to the attorney general to get the attorney general to, uh, hopefully agree with me, which I believe the law is clear, that the statutes that they're relying on to say that you need an in-person visit have to do with prescribing controlled substances, and this is not a prescription for a controlled substance. It's a recommendation for medical marijuana, which is a legal distinction. Knowing the politics of Louisiana, any feelings about the way this might fall out? We've been having a. Uh, I've had several preliminary meetings with the, the attorney general's office, and you know, I, again, I believe the law is very clear that the legislative intent was to allow telemedicine without any restriction at all. You know, we, we're trying to serve the people in the rural areas who don't have access to doctors, and then you know, to couple it with you don't have access to a doctor, and you also don't have access to a doctor that will do a recommendation for medical marijuana. Now telling that same class of people, go drive somewhere to do an in-person visit, is really harming the program and, and denying people access to medicine, which is already an issue. Joe, you have been a patient advocate from the beginning on this and continue to be, and we uh, thank you for the discussions that you give us on this because it's, it's always informative. Yeah, we, you know, the, 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 the new... Um, Hopefully, we'll get a new dispensary in, in the Jefferson uh, Parish, you know, Orleans Parish area to compete with the existing one. And, and the more, obviously, the more the better, because you're not going to get any, any real uh, break on pricing until you have competition with someone other than yourself. Joe Marino is chair of the state's Medical Marijuana Commission. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Carl Lengel. Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff convened a roundtable with Jewish leaders on Wednesday, an attempt by one of the most prominent Jewish Americans to address a rise in anti-Semitism and a rare step into the spotlight by Vice President Harris's husband. Tulane Professor Emeritus Lawrence Powell has written the biography of New Orleans-based Holocaust survivor Anne Levy and about rising incidents of anti-Semitism across the country. He served as the vice chair of the Louisiana Coalition Against Racism and Nazism. Professor Powell joins us now. In 2021, the Anti-Defamation League found that hate crimes against Jewish people had reached an all-time high. Overall incidents increased by 34%. Attacks on synagogues and JCCs increased by 61%. That's only expected to keep climbing for the 2022 report. What are some of the reasons you think this might be happening? Why is anti-Semitism on the rise in all 50 states? Well, I think if I had to find one shortcut answer, it would be the, the national appetite for conspiracy theories, because that's the breeding ground when, when uh, for anti-Semitism, even among the kind of uninitiated. Um, 
anti-Semitism is probably the uh, conspiracy, conspiratorial anti-Semitism is probably the Swiss army knife of conspiracy thinking. Uh, for one reason, it has an incredible head start. And you can blame the Jews for everything, for communism, for capitalism, um, for what have you. And so it just seems uh, depressingly enduring. And if people are looking for easy answers and scapegoats and, and the grand conspiracies, you know, along the, the, the lines of the protocols of the elders of, of Zion, uh, you know, this is there's no easier one to, to dredge up because everybody knows about it. Everybody has a bit of that folk anti-Semitism, I think. Uh, I don't want to say in their DNA, but in their folk memory. And to that point, it's not just the rapper Ye elevating anti-Semitic tropes, but it seems pretty clear his elevation of these hateful ideas is contributing to the recent wave of hate crimes. In Los Angeles, one group hung banners on the freeway that said, Kanye West is right about the Jews. Well, I mean, he is simply uh, amplifying it. I mean, suddenly it's become respectable. It used to be disrespectable. And now we've got, uh, you know, the, the culture and the social media uh, is all basically issuing permissions to, to hate, to scapegoat, uh, to blame the other. I mean, a lot of people have experienced some pretty hard times. It's a frightening time. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of, especially the white working class, a lot of white people, have, along with everybody else, have you know below a certain income level, have have seen their way of life and their uh, standard of living, and the opportunities and life chances for their children and grandchildren uh, shrink. So they're fearing that they're going to be displaced, and uh, and of course you look for some some grand answer, somebody to blame you know, some scapegoats, and it's usually people who are people of color or people of a different uh, uh, immigrants, people of a different uh, race or religion. And anti-Semitism is, as I said, it's really kind of a plug-and-play prejudice that you can play on, and, and it just covers a covers a waterfront of, of uh, bogeymen. Do, do we, by silencing those who spew this hatred, are we only making them more powerful? Well, that the silencing uh, is also always runs the risk of creating more sympathy for them, or I would say probably consolidating the sympathy they already have. But I think that uh, prejudice is something sort of like mushrooms, you know, it grows in the dark. And the more permissive you are about this kind of thing, I think the worse it gets. I don't, I don't see any. I, you know, I, I don't believe in the absolutist position on on free speech. I mean, there are certain there are certain subjects in a in a multicultural democracy that should be off limits. Uh, now, if people, you know, you have a right to say what you you wish, and you know, in the public square. But there's, I don't think that extends to social media platforms, mainstream media. I, I just don't. Professor Emeritus of History at Tulane University, Lawrence Powell, about the rise in anti-Semitism that is plaguing our country. Let's put this all in a Louisiana context for a minute. You wrote about the story of Anne Levy, a Holocaust survivor in New Orleans, whose confrontation and takedown of David Duke when he was serving as a state representative was impressive. Can you tell us a bit more about Anne Levy and what lessons we can learn from her that apply to what we are dealing with today? Well, again, if the lesson is you don't you don't let these things pass unchallenged, and uh, 
she's a very at that time and still is it's not a person who likes to get in your face but i think uh, the way in which david duke was uh but it's his, uh, his denying of Holocaust, uh, that the Holocaust had happened, or even his minimization of it, which is too great a kind of a, an insult, uh, an attack on her dignity and her memory. And, and she, she, it was one of these cases uh, that first you get angry, then you find courage. And I think the fact that she decided to, to challenge this guy and to say, this is not just an ordinary politician, but a moral crisis. I think had a galvanizing and, a, and effect on, on a lot of us back then, and you know at least stiffened our backbone and, and reassured us that the issue we faced then, just as now, was not simply you know a disagreement over partisan issues, over welfare reform or taxes, etc. It was a, a it was a moral crisis, and she saw that instinctively because of her experience and what she went through, what she lived through, and the responsibility she felt as a survivor. Uh, to speak out, to bear bear truth, to bear witness, and that's I think the lesson for all of us that we we just need to speak out against this stuff. Actually, that brings me to the final question: What's the advice going forward? What do we take from Anne Levy's story as we grapple with the rise in anti-Semitism? And on a hopeful note, is there room in the Jewish community the, that this might come to an end and might pass soon? Well, I think the fever might might break eventually. Uh, uh, you know what I would like to see happen. I mean, of course, education is you know critical, but I'd like to see the evangelical churches start to speak out against this. Uh, I don't think they've been saying enough. You know, they have become fast friends of Israel, and uh, I think now it's time for them, in particular, uh, to take a stand. Uh, and I see things are happening. I've been reading where things are happening in the, in the evangelical movement, where it's kind of the true, true believers, people who believe in the Sermon on the Mount and so on, even all the Christian virtues, uh, are, are disappointed and are leaving the church and they're attracting people, I guess you could only call as uh, white nationalists. So I really do think the churches have a, a responsibility here. Professor Emeritus of History at Tulane University, Lawrence Powell, about the rise in anti-Semitism plaguing our country. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Carl Lengel. The pandemic ravaged our families and friends indiscriminately. We lost many we loved. Two years ago this week, the entertainment community around the world mourned one specific loss, Carol Sutton. The New Orleans actress who graced the stage and numerous films as she breathed life into the written word. Here's an encore presentation of our remembrance from two years ago of this very special lady. The posts began populating the social media platforms early last Friday morning. Carol Sutton had passed overnight, another victim of the cruel coronavirus. By midday, it was obvious that it wouldn't be just New Orleans mourning this passing. As I researched this tribute to Carol, I stumbled across articles in French, Spanish, and even Swedish. From around the globe, the theater and film community was mourning the loss of this empress of the Big Easy Entertainment family. Actor Wendell Pierce. She was the gold standard. I put her on par with Dame Judi Dench and, and Maggie Smith and, and Meryl Streep. She did everything. She was the gold standard. Carol Sutton was born Carol Joan Dickerson and grew up in the Central City neighborhood of New Orleans. 
From a young age, her mother, Marguerite Bush, a community activist, made sure she would be a strong and centered woman. She graduated from Xavier Prep School and, for a while, attended Xavier University, dropping out to marry Archie Sutton. She started working in 1968 for Total Community Action, an anti-poverty agency which sent her to Texas Southern University in Houston. She earned certification in early childhood development. Active as a coloratura soprano in the choir in her neighborhood church, St. Francis de Sales, she happened across one of the many community groups for which the church had opened its doors, the Dashiki Theater Project. Dillard graduate Ted Gilliam had established Dashiki in the mid-1960s as a voice for the black theater community, and unlike the Free Southern Project, which focused on roles for black males, Dashiki encouraged women to participate. In the late 1960s and early 70s, Sutton took on strong women's roles alongside Patricia McGuire Hill, Barbara Tasker, Claudia Miller, Francesca Roberts, Pamela Blatcher, and Gwendolyn Foxworth, and they became known as the Dashiki Divas. Dashiki exposed Sutton to writers like Lonnie Elder III, Ed Bullens, James Baldwin, and Louisiana's own Norbert Davidson. In her two decades of work there, she not only appeared on stage, but directed for Dashiki. In 1974, she appeared in the TV film The Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. The crossover from stage to film is not always easy, but Sutton handled it well. Lance Nichols. It operates from different parts of the brain, because when you're on stage, you are actually performing, for lack of a better word, with your entire body. When you are doing film and television, everything is really within the uh, circumference of your face, and not a lot of actors can go back and forth like that. Carol was one of them. She was just as mesmerizing on stage as she was in film. Through the 80s and 90s, Sutton capitalized on that stage film crossover strength, and by the time of her passing last week, had accrued a resume of more than 100 films and TV appearances, including Sounder, The Big Easy, Runaway Jury, Monster's Ball, The Pelican Brief, Steel Magnolias, Ray, Glory Road, The Help, and 21 Jump Street, and in the television series Treme, True Detective, and Lovecraft Country, and the 2016 remake of Roots. If a film or a TV production came to New Orleans to shoot, there was a good chance Carol Sutton would have a role. She left Central City and her hometown only for a few weeks of work at a time. Wendell Pierce. She knew that work gets you work, and that when something came through New Orleans, and she did her job and did it so well, that there would be others that would call for her. As she built that magnificent body of work over the decades, she became more confident. By the 90s, her confidence inspired others. Actor Harold Evans. Well, it was all about learning the piece itself, because those times would come when memory would disappear, and instead of stopping and trying to think of what to do, she would just go on. And I learned from that the idea of being confident enough and knowledgeable enough of the piece being done to just carry on and do what that character would do. As she built that body of work, she inspired scores of young, up-and-coming actors. Actress and casting agent Kaia Livers. I was a student at NOCA, and my teacher, Elliot Keener, told me about this 
black woman named Carol Sutton. You need to go to Daishiki Theater to see Carol Sutton. I'm telling you, you're going to learn a lot from her. But it wasn't just that talent and confidence that people adored about Carol Sutton. It was also her expansive humanity and generosity. Actor Lance Nichols recalled her concern for his son-in-law during a trying time. About two years ago, my son-in-law had a uh, major stroke in Costa Rica. And we were trying to get him back here, flown back here medically uh, to the United States to get treatment. And so we, my daughter set up a GoFundMe page on Facebook. And Carol saw the post and she called me up. She said, now, Mr. Lance, I saw what you put up on Facebook. I don't know how to do it. I don't have that cash app, Venmo stuff, but I'll mail you a check with, with your address. And so I gave her my address, and she, you know, a couple of days later, man, a check came in the mail from her, and that's how she was. That's how she was, man. She was a very, very giving, loving person. When I asked what she might think about the fact that in the last week, the phones have been ringing from around the world. Kaia Livers said. She would be surprised. Uh, she would be humble, like genuinely humble. I mean, she was a star. Uh, you know, she glowed. Her, her, her presence, when she walked into a room, you knew it was something very special about her. But that's not how she felt. You know, she didn't walk into the room like, I'm the star. She, she just was Carol. She would be shocked. But I'm not because she was a star. Carol had just celebrated her 76th birthday as COVID-19 was working its way through her body. One week and a day later, it took that body from us. Too early. But her body of work remains. Wendell Pierce. She lived her craft. The gold standard of what it is to be an artist and what that means, the transformation of who you are as a character as a student of human behavior, so those who see your work can identify with it and maybe learn something from it. That is what an artist does. That is what Carol did to everything that she did. And she proved that you can create a great body of work in theater, television, and film across the board, locally, nationally, and internationally, and be revered and create a legacy. And we will have multitudes of films and television productions that we can see and be reminded of how great she was. She was the gold standard. In New Orleans, I'm Carl Lingle. An encore presentation of our remembrance of Carol Sutton, who died two years ago this week. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Carl Lingle. That's the show today. Thanks to our guests, Representative Joe Marino and Professor Emeritus of History at Tulane University, Lawrence Powell. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and at 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Southern Strategy Group. (laughs) 